Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 28 of Unknown Orbits, born of man and woman by Richard Matheson. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Today's story is not quite exactly a science fiction story. You could postulate that it has a science fiction origin, but that's kind of the point based on what we're going to talk about a little later. So the story Born of Man and Woman by Richard Matheson, widely considered one of the great stories of its era, one of the great stories of the magazine that it appeared in, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. It uh, is a very simple story. It's told from the point of view of a child chained up in a basement being abused by its parents. And you build sympathy for the character, you build sympathy for the child, and it turns out that the child is not everything that you thought it might have been. It's something quite horrible. So that's it. That's really all there is to the story, but because it's so beautifully written and so well written that it's absorbing, and like I said, you identify it first with the child until you get to the end where the horrible realization kicks in and he does some horrible things at the very end. How did you feel about the story, Steve? I've loved the story since the first time I read it. It is surprisingly short for how evocative it is. I reread it uh, a couple days ago, and it's like five-minute read. Yeah, it's not very long at all. Richard Matheson is one of my favorite, not only my favorite writers to read, but as a writer, he is absolutely a model for me. I have consciously tried to model myself after his simple yet elegant prose. And I'm not alone. He's one of Stephen King's major influences. I would argue that Stephen King is kind of the disciple of Richard Matheson, that he was the person who came along and carried on the legacy of Richard Matheson in his writing. He's a fantastic writer. He's written a lot of different kinds of stories, but he's always done so in a way that was clear and to the point, but yet beautifully written and beautifully constructed. I cannot say enough nice things about Richard Matheson as an author. Many years ago, in a writing exercise, I did a two-paragraph, we're kind, and we call it, what, a a pastiche? Yeah, sure, a pastiche. I, I ripped them off. Which is acceptable for a writing exercise. It's probably not a bad idea. All you young writers out there... Feel free to rip off your favorite writer when you're just doing writing exercises. It's very helpful. One thing I really liked about the story is that it's from the viewpoint of the monster. Imagine if you had written it from the viewpoint of the parents, it would not be as enigmatic. No, there'd be no mystery, no surprise reveal. You'd be obliged to immediately explain what it is, where it came from, the whole circumstances. But from the monster's viewpoint, you just have its limited world. And that's even better because the unknown horror is always scarier than the known horror. Actually, now that I think about it, that would be a good writing exercise is to write the same story from the viewpoint of the parent. That would be a really good writing exercise because 
you would have to find a way to conceal the mystery at least halfway or more through the story. That would be challenging. And you would have to have a completely different take on what was happening in that story, a different emotional tone and everything. So that would actually be a really good writing experiment. You know, you bring up another view I have on story writing, which this comes from writing jokes. A story is you taking the reader by the hand and making absolutely sure they see everything you need them to see. And what you don't want them to see. Make sure they don't see that. Exactly. Avoiding anything that you don't want them to see down the garden path at the last possible moment you give the smallest amount of information that unties the entire story if you can. You and I were just talking about the movie The Sixth Sense the other night. Yes. And I rewatched it a couple of days ago, and it's probably the third or fourth time that I've watched it. So when you're watching it with a writer's eye, it's magnificent. I mean, it's so beautifully written. And you're watching how the writer set everything up, how they fooled the audience. And then the thing that really stuck with me was that the ending had three parts to it, that it didn't happen all at once. The first part was, and for those of you who haven't seen Sixth Sense, I'm going to spoil this for you because, to be honest with you, if you're living and you haven't seen The Sixth Sense, you're an idiot. So anyway. Count it up. It's what, like 24 years ago? Yeah, 24 years ago. That's like one of those movies that everybody should be forced to see starting at age 10, I think. But anyway, so the ending begins with the character of the psychiatrist saying goodbye to the little boy. And and the little boy acknowledges that he's shown him how to handle the ghosts and learn how to listen to them and help them. And then he says, we're not going to see each other anymore, are we? And the psychiatrist says, no, we'll pretend like we're going to see each other tomorrow. So in that encounter, the little boy says, you know, some of these ghosts don't realize that they're ghosts and just plants that little seed. But it's done in a way that is not obvious at all. Then the next scene is the little boy's in the car with his mother. There's a car accident. Somebody dies. The ghost appears. And the little boy reveals his secret to his mother that he can talk to the dead. But then there's this touching moment where he talks about talking to grandma. And grandma had a message for her. And it wraps up his story beautifully. And then you finally get the final scene where the psychiatrist goes home. His wife is sleeping. He's talking to his wife. And she says in her sleep, why did you leave me? She opens her hand and his engagement ring falls out of it. He looks and he's got no wedding ring on his hand. And then you flash back quickly to all the little moments where he realizes at that point that he's dead and he's been a ghost this whole time. And it took three scenes to set up and do that ending. And from a writer's standpoint, I thought, my God, that's beautiful. That is so brilliantly done. Now I want to write a a novel that has a three-scene ending that I kick the book off and seal it with a very satisfying conclusion that takes three scenes to set up and write. So that's getting a little off topic here, but we were talking about doing writing exercises and about how Richard Matheson in particular constructed his stories beautifully. And that's what he's really great at is he's just a great storyteller. And if you don't believe me, I'm going to go down a list of his credits here that for some of you might be a surprise. For those of you who are fans like me will not be. 
we've already talked about I Am Legend. That's the vampire novel that he wrote in 1954. We talked about that in a previous episode about science fiction origins of the zombie myth, which I Am Legend was probably the largest influence of all on that. He wrote the novella The Shrinking Man, which was adapted into The Incredible Shrinking Man, an excellent science fiction film from the 50s. You know, The Incredible Shrinking Man has one of my favorite moments in 1950s science fiction movies. What's that? It's where the actor didn't know how to pronounce a word. He's the doctor who asks the affected man, well, have you been exposed to any radio activity? (laughs) Okay. That's charming. And Hell House, a terrific haunted house movie, one of the best ones ever made. Very Also a very good book, What Dreams May Come. That was another one adapted to a movie. Stir of Echoes, excellent ghost story, another excellent ghost stories with Kevin Bacon. Bid Time Return, which was adapted into an excellent version called Somewhere in Time with Christopher Reeve. Who's the female lead in that movie? Christopher Reeve and another big actress of the day. I believe it was Jane Alexander. Jane Alexander, yes, you're right. Yeah, if you want to make a romantic movie, you've got to get two elegant, handsome people. And Christopher Reeve and Jane Alexander, that's a perfect pairing. I'm not a big fan of romance movies, but that's a pretty darn good one. Another one is the movie Steel. The movie was real Steel, I believe. And Uh, that was also adapted for a Twilight Zone episode. There is a connection between the two. I thought it was a coincidence. No, it was double adapted. And he wrote the teleplay and screenplay in both cases. And by the way, when I'm saying these were all adaptations of his books and stories, he was the one that adapted them. He wrote the screenplays for just about all of these movies. So he was not just a great writer of short stories and novels, but he was also a great screenwriter. And speaking of The Twilight Zone, he wrote at least two that I could find. There may have been a few more, but there's two that everybody who's watched The Twilight Zone will recognize. The first one is Third from the Sun which we actually thought about doing that story as an episode at one point. That's the one where people are leaving their planet. They're leaving a very Earth-like planet and heading to a new planet to settle, and it turns out to be the third planet from the sun, which is, oh, it's Earth. But the one that everybody will remember, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet with Bill Shatner overacting way over the top, as he always does, where the uh, little monsters on the wing of the plane and Bill Shatner is freaking out. That's one that if everybody said, what's your five favorite Twilight Zone episodes? That one is going to be on most people's list, I would guess. He seems to keep revisiting the idea of a fate that we're fighting against, of helplessness. You know what? That's a really good point, because I think you're right. The characters in a lot of his stories are, they're trapped. They're caught in something. They're caught in forces beyond their comprehension and control. So, for instance, in Hell House, the uh, character of the female medium winds up getting tangled up with the ghost of this young boy who was the son of the evil guy that owned the house. So there was a whole subplot of that movie of what happened between her and the ghost. Somewhere in time, it's literally a story about being trapped in time and being divided by time. A stir of echoes. The Kevin Bacon character is haunted by these visions and these ideas until he is driven to find out why he's being haunted in this house that he just moved into. So let's see here. Other examples. Well, you know, nightmare 20,000 feet. You're trapped on an airplane and you can't get off and this 
thing is tormenting you. So many of his stories have that element, and it's great for suspense. If you're writing horror, it's a great motif for horror, putting a character in a situation that they can't escape from. So yes, he was a master of that. Now, for someone like me who's a boomer, this guy was in the background of our lives growing up because he was a writer for The Twilight Zone. He wrote all these books and wrote the screenplays for all these movies that we saw growing up. And he wrote just about all of the screenplays for the Roger Corman Poe movies. So the House of Usher, oh. uh, the Mask of the Red Death. My favorite is the... Pit and uh, the Pendulum, which the was one. my favorite. When I was a kid, I saw that for the first time, and it freaked me right out, because, boy, is that a great horror movie. My exact kid. reaction. Written by Richard Matheson. So he had that huge cultural impact of shaping and writing all of those movies. And if that wasn't enough, then you get to the 1970s, and on ABC television, you have this thing, a phenomenon called the movie of the week, where they started producing their own TV movies. That was not a thing prior to the early 1970s. You did not have made-for-TV movies done very often, if at all. And some of them were really great. Let me just lay the big one on you. Well, there's two big ones. The Night Stalker. I'm a fan of The Night Stalker, but I was shocked that Matheson was the one who did the screenplay. Yeah. In this case, he did not write the novel. The novel was written by somebody else, but he adapted the novel and wrote the screenplay and improved the novel significantly in the adaptation. The Night Stalker was the basis for the TV show Kolchak the Night Stalker, which was a big influence on the X-Files a few years later. Surprisingly, it was only 12 or 13 episodes. Yeah, it was one season, and it wasn't even a full season, I think. It was a Monster of the Week show where... One week it was a mummy, one week it was a werewolf, one week it was a robot. They weren't the greatest shows ever made on television, but, you know, I was a teenager and it was fun. But the original made-for-TV movie, The Night Stalker, is great. It is a fantastic movie. It was directed and produced by Dan Curtis, who's the man who did Dark Shadows, the TV show. And he did a number of really good TV movies in the 1970s. He adapted Dracula once couple other famous monster story adaptations. The other big one, which any of you who are old enough will remember fondly with terror, Trilogy of Terror with Karen Black with the devil doll. She brings home this African devil doll and it comes to life and starts chasing her around the apartment with a kitchen knife. I think it was one of the earliest anthology movies. Well, on TV. I mean, okay. there, there had been a lot of anthology movies made before that. But you skipped over one. I thought the second one was going to be The Night Strangler. Oh, yes, which was excellent as well, which is about sort of a Dorian Gray character. Yeah, I think uh, so. Guy who's yeah, he been alive for dust. 200 years or something in the city under Seattle, like the old city under Seattle. Yeah, they're both terrific. I mean, I don't know if they're widely available on streaming or not, but if they were, I cannot recommend them enough. And Trilogy of Terror was one of those cultural events where the next day at school, that's all everybody was talking about. It was, oh my God, did you see that movie with that little doll and he's going to get the <laughs> knife and he's stabbing her in the ankles and, you know. Do you recall the other two segments? Not really. Karen Black starred in all three of them. The other two were okay, probably. But yeah, that was huge. If you were to name the 20 top cultural moments of the 1970s, the final segment of Trilogy of Terror would be on that list. And the last one that I'm going to throw out there 
is a personal favorite of mine, one of my favorite moments. The TV show Night Gallery, which was hosted by Rod Serling from The Twilight Zone in the early 70s, was not the greatest show that it ever was, but it had its moments of genuine horror. And my personal favorite is Big Surprise, which is like a 10-minute segment about a little boy who talks to the creepy old man of the neighborhood, and he tells him, go out into the field and 10 paces from the old oak tree, dig down six feet, and you'll get a big surprise. And that's John Carradine, the inimitable John Carradine, who is utterly perfect for this particular story and part. You're doing the voice. And he gets a big surprise at the end, and it's one of my favorite moments in TV ever. If you can look that up on YouTube, Big Surprise on Night Gallery. It's a little gem, and it's just a personal favorite of mine, written by Richard Matheson, adapted from a story of his. So if there's anybody that you can think of in the field of science fiction that has a more impressive body of work than Richard Matheson, I dare you to name him, because he wrote all of these great stories, some of which are considered some of the greatest stories ever written in their field, all these great novels important novels like I Am Legend. And then he adapted many of them himself, or he adapted other people's work, or he wrote original screenplays from an amazing number of memorable movies and TV shows. Your thoughts? I was struggling to try to remember the name of a science fiction author, because there is one that I would put up, maybe not tied with Matheson, but very close, who his entire output he had like no bad stories and his style could be compared to Matheson's. It's short, it's evocative, it's great ideas. And interestingly, he's largely forgotten. Which stories? Could you name any of the stories that he wrote? Uh, Rainbird, which was a scientist invents a time machine to go back in time to teach his younger self all the science he learned so that he can therefore advance beyond the science he's already discovered. So it's the late 1700s and he's inventing aircraft and time travel on power stations. And I won't give away the ending, but it's a cute little story. It's in our list of potential things to talk about. He also wrote Bright Coins in a Never-Ending Fountain, technically fantasy. Is that the one about the coin purse that never empties? Yes. I read that story. When you first gave me that collection, I don't remember the author's name, but there's probably a number of authors that you could name that had a very impressive string of stories and books that they wrote. But my point would be, I think Matheson and this other guy have the highest percentage of great stories. I mean, you could go to someone like Asimov or Pohl and find a lot of clunkers. Yeah. Oh, yes, definitely. And that's a good point about Matheson is, I think he hit the ground running. I think this was one of his earlier stories. I think Third from the Sun was maybe the second story that he ever sold, 1950, 1951. Second? Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, he hit the ground running. He didn't have several years of mediocre stories like Asimov did, or some of the other writers you could probably point to, where they were developing as writers. Bradbury, you know, Bradbury wrote a bunch of very derivative stories for Weird Tales, for several years. Matheson hit the ground running. And there's a bunch of science fiction writers you can point to that were equally good that way. But in terms of just the fact that he was an important 
contributor to mass culture for four decades. That's in itself really impressive when you realize it's not just writing stories and novels, it's adapting them and writing original screenplays on top of all of that. It's amazing. It's just an amazing resume for that guy. So the reason that we're picking this particular story is that it appeared in a magazine, the Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, which first appeared in October 1949. Last episode, we talked about Galaxy Magazine, how important a magazine that was in the 1950s. The other magazine that came along at the time that was right up there with Galaxy is this magazine. And the background is, it's interesting, they were published by the same publisher that put out the very popular Ellery Queen magazine. So the publishers of Ellery Queen magazine, they wanted to do a fantasy magazine first, and they were going to use the same digest format that Ellery Queen had helped to popularize. They brought in Anthony Boucher, a terrific writer and editor, and J. Francis McComas to develop this idea. So initially, the magazine was just called Fantasy, and they were going to concentrate on fantasy, but Boucher and McComas convinced the publishers to include science fiction as well. They were given kind of direction, or they agreed that it was going to initially imitate the formula that had made Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine very successful. Classic reprints, along with quality fiction, that avoided the excesses of the pulps. And that's what fantasy and science fiction did Initially, they reprinted classic science fiction and fantasy stories and from the very beginning had a very high level of quality in the magazine. But that didn't last for long. They did start publishing more and more new stuff right away. Oh, yeah. That may have been a publishing thing. If you're going to do a brand new magazine, especially if you're coming into a developing market where there's a lot of competition all of a sudden, you know, you got to fill the space with something. Now, I'm sure that they needed to do that in the short run. Unlike Galaxy, they didn't have the highest pay rate, but they were still competitive with Astounding Magazine. So they were able to get the writers that were writing for Astounding Magazine to write for them. One of the interesting things about them was they were the only magazine of their type that was printed in a single column. Most Digest magazines printed in a two-column format. Though I think I have seen some old detective or mystery magazines. Maybe that was an Ellery Queen thing. Maybe that's how Ellery Queen was published. I didn't see a mention of that. But it looked classier to have a single column of text with wide margins. Yeah, I think the, uh, I say lack of, but you say they did employ artists later. The low amount of art and the lack of editorials. And all that yeah, they didn't, could be seen as elevating it into more of a literature publication. They didn't have all the typical elements that the other magazines had, like scientific articles and fan pages and editorials. It was very much focused on the contents, the fiction. As I said, it was a very high-quality magazine. Here's just a couple of really famous, important stories that were published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, A Canicle for Leibowitz, which I believe is a favorite of yours. Oh, absolutely. And I think I want to do an episode on it. I think we've already got that on the list. So yeah, we'll be definitely doing that. I don't know if it became a huge bestseller when it went into book form or whether it was really big in the magazine, but I know that at one point it was huge. I had to read it in school. 
by the time I was in the early 1970s in middle school, I think it was, maybe high school, it was required reading for one of my classes. It's a shame it's never been adapted into anything visual. In the way current limited series are done for some of these channels, this would be perfect. I agree. I think it's a great story. Another one that, again, I believe I read in school, Flowers for Algernon. Absolutely in high school for me. Which was adapted into a really nice movie with Cliff Robertson. That was a very sweet movie. That was another huge story that transcended the magazine, that's for sure. And then Starship Troopers, arguably Heinlein's most successful, famous work. Now, there was a lot of difference between the novel and the movie. Yes and no. The thing about Starship Troopers was he wrote it as a juvenile, and it was rejected. That's how it wound up in fantasy and science fiction. It was rejected by his publisher. He was publishing a lot of juvenile fiction at the time. So he rewrote it, and it became the story that we all know now. Yes, it's different than the movie. The movie kind of makes fun of Heinlein's ideas. One reason it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. That's one of the things I'm really proud of. I saw that movie when it came out in the theaters. I'll admit, I saw the trailer for it at another movie, and it's like giant bugs and marines. I'm like, oh, Jesus, I have got to go see this movie about space marines killing giant bugs. And that's all I needed to see. And I was like, I'm in for this movie. And I had not read Starship Troopers at the time. So I saw the movie, and I got it immediately. I got the joke. I got what the director was going for immediately. And it was so funny to see the reaction afterwards. All these people going, oh, my God, he made a pro-Nazi movie. Oh, it's the worst thing ever. And I'm like, you idiots. This guy grew up in the Netherlands during Nazi occupation. Do you think he was going to make a pro-Nazi movie? Not likely. At the time, I was with a group of three other people, and we were seeing movies every weekend. Uh, if you recall, Dollar Cinema is one of oh, those. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This one weekend, when Starship Troopers showed up there, I said, I want to pick the movie this week. We're going to see this. And we all saw it. I was the only one who understood it, and they never <laughs> wanted me to ever pick a movie again. <laughs> the funny thing is, I think I took my kids to it, and they got it. They loved it. The whole Space Marine killing giant bugs didn't hurt the thing. Yeah, fantasy and science fiction magazine won their share of Hugos during the 1950s and beyond. They're still around, I think. Yes, yes, they are. I have not seen them on my local newsstand, but I believe they're still around. So along with Galaxy, they were part of that great wave of popularity that science fiction had during the 1950s. Our previous episode, we talked about that quite a bit. You call it the silver age of science fiction. I call it the real golden age of science fiction. But we both agree that the quality of science fiction and the popularity of it was never equaled since then. You know, there may have been periods where there was great science fiction being written, but it certainly didn't reach the levels of popularity that you had in the 1950s, where at one point you got to, I believe, 42 different titles on the newsstands, which is an amazing number. You know, it was a part of that. And to its credit, it elevated the level of science fiction significantly with its standard of quality. It rounded out the big three, Astounding, Galaxy, and Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, and they almost reinforced each other. If you were a writer, pick any story you want, and it will fit two of the magazines. So you right. try to sell to the one that pays the most, and if they don't take it, you go to the next one. And we're kind of overlooking a little bit the fact that the fantasy 
element was there. So that was a market for fantasy writing as well at the time, which did not hit the levels of popularity that science fiction did, but that was the beginning of fantasy becoming a popular genre, at least in America. I think what it was is you had three magazines, all of which were edited by editors with very high standards, paying well. I think Galaxy paid three cents a word, and Astounding and Fantasy and Science Fiction paid two cents a word, where three cents a word was about as good as you could get back in those days. So they were able, between the three of them, to attract all of the best science fiction and fantasy writers of their day. If John W. Campbell didn't like a particular story of yours, you could hand it off to H.L. Gold, and he'd probably pick it up at Galaxy Magazine. What a great era for writers. And we've talked about this numerous times. And Richard Matheson, by the way, fits this particular profile. He was a World War II vet, got out of the Army, GI Bill, got a bachelor's degree in journalism in 1949 from Missouri University. So he fit this new science fiction writer profile of not a scientist, but a writer. And there were many others just like him. And that helped to provide a much more fertile ground for fiction in the 1950s, that you weren't just relying on all the old pros, the guys who'd been around during the Campbell years, but new writers who were coming in with interesting and exciting new ideas. And they're all competing. They're all in this bountiful era when just about anything you write gets published, even something that you thought might not be that good. You just get it published in a lesser magazine, maybe. Oh, yeah. With 42 magazines, there were some bad ones. And they would go down to half a cent a word. Oh, sure. Probably every publishing company in America had a science fiction magazine at that point and some fly-by-night type places, too, I'm sure. So that golden era came to a crashing end, however. In 1957, almost all magazines and comic books in America were distributed through one distributor, ANC. I believe that stood for American Newspaper Corporation. I'm not sure. But because they were a monopoly, basically, they did some nefarious bookkeeping things where they were ripping off publishing companies. They were engaged in some shady practices and they collapsed under the weight of investigations from authorities in 1957. And that was a huge blow to all these publishers. They didn't have any way to get their magazines onto newsstands. I recall a story of at least a couple magazines went out of business solely because the very small competition for ANC was overwhelmed and couldn't take on their business. Yes, absolutely. It was just one of those things that within a few months to a year, a lot of these magazines, these 42 science fiction magazines, they were just gone. The companies behind them, some of them were gone. It was a dramatic moment, and the science fiction industry never really fully regained momentum from that. You still had Galaxy astounding and fantasy and science fiction, they all survived. They survived well into the 1960s, but they lost their competitors. And all these science fiction writers lost a lot of markets. If you look, some of the writers that had a flourishing career, they moved on to other things in life. It was a turning point for science fiction, and it was a big deal. So that was the end of the Golden Age or the Silver Age, however you choose to call it, of science fiction in the 1950s. Do you have any more thoughts on uh, Richard Matheson or the end of the Golden Age or Silver Age? or? The only other thought I have is that is the second 
maybe even third, that you have brought up the big surprise episode of Night Gallery, and you have yet to allow me to do my Jack Benny impersonation. Okay, I will apologize for bringing up big surprise yet again, but if you promise to never do the Jack Benny impersonation on this show. I will not do the Jack Benny impersonation. If you can find a science fiction connection to Jack Benny, I might consider it. That's a challenge. Well, anyway, that's it for episode 28. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.